Dear friend, I'm Dr. David Jeremiah, and I'd like to take a moment to speak with you as the world faces the coronavirus pandemic. There is no question we are living in a time of unprecedented uncertainty. It is unlike anything I have experienced in my whole life. And the temptation in times like these is to allow fear and worry to creep into our thoughts and to rob us of our joy. But in these uncertain times, we need to remember that God is still in control. And my prayer for you is that you are healthy, you're in a safe place and surrounded by those you love. Please keep the ministry of Turning Point in your prayers as well. We will continue to bring the healing power of God's Word to you each day on radio, television, and online. And I really hope this will be a source of encouragement to you during the current coronavirus. So be safe, be in the Word, and be in prayer. When Jesus spoke of His death, the disciples didn't understand the significance. Over 2,000 years later, many still don't. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah unpacks one of Jesus' best-known teaching on His coming death and resurrection, what it meant for His followers then and now. From In Search of the Savior, here's David to introduce his message, The Way Up is the Way Down. You know, in our society today, we are so confused. We highlight greatness in terms of achievement and money. Like this, we argue that Michael Jordan is greater than LeBron James because he has won more championships. That Jeff Bezos is greater than Elon Musk because his company is worth more. But in the economy of heaven, greatness is not measured by success, accumulation, or fame. Greatness in heaven is measured in service, especially in service that is humble and genuine. Many men and women may achieve a certain amount of greatness here on this earth, but no one demonstrated greatness at a higher level than Jesus Christ. If a man wants to be great, said the Lord Jesus, let him become the least among you. And we're going to talk about that servant leadership concept here in these next two broadcasts today and again on Monday. In your Bible, we're in Mark chapter 10, and uh, you can find your place there. Your study guide is the last chapter in the study guide, so be sure and look there too. Hey, and don't forget, we're almost out of time to tell you about our special resource, one of the most sought-after resources we've ever had, The Bible Code, this beautiful 200-page book by O.S. Hawkins, Finding Jesus in Every Book in the Bible, yes, in all of the Old Testament books. You will really not want to put this down once you start reading it because it's so intriguing to see how faithfully our Lord is represented from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. This book is yours for the asking when you send a gift of any size to Turning Point before the calendar turns over in the month of November. You have just a few days left, so don't wait until the last minute. Right now, here we are with this paradox, if you will. The way up is the way down. Mark chapter 10. The whole subject about who is the greatest is a subject that is as old as the world, is it not? (laughs) Who is the greatest? And what does it mean to be great? And most of us have a general idea of someone who is great. If you had to be asked in your world, whatever world you live in, maybe you're in the industrial world or the electronic world or you're in sales, 
you probably could list four or five people that you think are the greatest in what you do. You're Mount Rushmore for your particular vocation. But as we open our Bibles today, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to take this whole issue of greatness and turn it on its head. And he's going to tell us about greatness in a way that we've never heard of it before. And it's going to come out of one of the most bizarre connection of episodes in the life of Jesus that you will ever remember. You will never come back to it again and not say, oh my goodness, how could that be true? If you follow along today, you're going to wonder at the beginning, where is this going and what does this have to do with greatness? But if you'll stay with me at the end, you're going to see how the Lord took an opportunity that came out of the ignorance of his disciples and used it to teach them and us one of the most important lessons we will ever learn. Now, this begins in the 32nd verse of the 10th chapter with Jesus predicting his death, the prediction of Jesus' death. We learn, first of all, that he's leading his disciples. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them. By the way, if you want to know whether you're a leader or not, all you have to do is look over your shoulder and see if anybody's following. And if no one's following you, guess what? You're not a leader. (laughs) Jesus and his disciples were headed toward Jerusalem and the crucifixion, and we're told that Jesus is out in front, leading his disciples, teaching by his very example. He's helping them know what leadership is all about. We all know that leadership is more caught than taught. You learn how to lead by watching others lead, and Jesus is leading his disciples. But we also discover in the early verses of this passage that Jesus is frightening his disciples. It says in verse 32, and they were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. The emotional state of the disciples is described by these two words, amazed and afraid. In our English translations, we might say it like this, they were astonished, they were filled with awe, they were filled with alarm, they were in wonder, they were in a daze, they were fearful. And we aren't told why that was true, but we can sort of imagine. It perhaps was in the way Jesus was speaking to them, perhaps in a more sober way than he had been used to. Perhaps it was in the steady and determined gait of their Savior as he walked in front of them. The Bible says he set his face as a flint toward Calvary. He never, ever lost view of his goal. Whatever it was that was happening that day, the disciples knew something was up. And they were filled with anxiety. And as they followed in wonder, they knew that there was something foreboding ahead of them. And it's a reminder to us that discipleship isn't a walk in the park, is it? (laughs) Discipleship means if you're going to walk with Jesus and follow Jesus, Jesus never walked around trouble. He walked through the middle of it. Here in this situation, believe it or not, Jesus is going up to Jerusalem And he is leading his disciples up to Jerusalem to the cross. And they're following. They don't know what's going on, but they're following. So now Jesus is going to tell them, he's going to teach them. We have him leading his disciples, frightening them, and now he's going to teach them, teaching his disciples, verse 33. And he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, He said, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles 
And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Now it's interesting to note that Jesus doesn't seek to quiet his disciples' fears. If this speech is supposed to make them less fearful, it's a big failure. (laughs) Because he's just upped the ante by about 100%. What they were afraid was going to happen isn't anything to what Jesus tells them is going to happen. And by the time we are in this incident here in chapter 10, Jesus has already predicted his death in the book of Mark on two other occasions. In fact, it's interesting to me, every once in a while I run into people who say, Jesus never said he was going to die, and he surely never said he was going to rise again from the dead. And when anybody says that to you, you know immediately they haven't read their Bible. Because here in the book of Mark, in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, right in the 30s in the verses, Three times in a row, Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen. Let's review them. Mark 8, 31, and he began to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 9, verse 31. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise again the third day. And they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Each time his disciples misunderstood the meaning of Jesus' words. They really thought he was talking about somehow setting up his future kingdom. They thought this was Israel's return to power and the end of bondage to Rome. But what Christ was telling them was that he would be suffering and he would offer himself as a sacrifice. He was not going to do any political maneuvering. He was going to give himself as a ransom for them. Of the three statements of Jesus concerning his impending death and resurrection, the one we have here in our text today, chapter 10, is the most detailed. In the first two predictions, Jesus told his disciples what would happen. In the third announcement, he told them where it would happen. Jesus' death, he said, will occur in Jerusalem. In chapter 8, Jesus tells his disciples the chief priests and the scribes will reject him. But here in chapter 10, he adds that these Jewish leaders will condemn him to death. And the legal term indicates that he will be tried and executed within the criminal justice system. And Mark adds that the Gentiles are going to be a part of this as well. So in the total sweep of the three passion predictions, every person is implicated in the death of Christ. And by the way, we're involved in that too, do you not know? Because we have participated in the death of Jesus, because Jesus died for us. Now the major differences between chapter 8 and 9 and chapter 10 is the attention that Jesus draws to the suffering he's going to undergo. In chapter 8 and 9, Jesus simply says he'll be killed. But here in chapter 10, he tells us he's going to be condemned, betrayed, mocked, scourged, spit upon, and then killed. In fact, Mark, in his passage here in the 10th chapter, really gives us the outline of the Passion Week for the Lord Jesus. I've kind of put it down in real terse statements. First of all, we started with the journey. We're going up to Jerusalem. Then he said he's going to be betrayed. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. Of course, that's about Judas. And then there's the indictment, and they will condemn him to death. And the conviction, and deliver him to the Gentiles. And the crucifixion, and they will mock him, and scourge him, and spit on him, 
and kill him. And then there's the resurrection. And the third day, he will rise again from the dead. Now, I want you to stop for just a moment and process what we've just talked about. Just stop and think about this for a moment. The Lord Jesus is walking up to Jerusalem. He's with his disciples. They're afraid. And instead of comforting them, he lays out what's going to happen. The brutality of his crucifixion. The ultimate death of their leader. And I want you just for a moment to think about this. What would you have said after Jesus told you that? What would you say? Oh, no, Lord, you can't do that. That's kind of what Peter said. Be it far from you, Lord. You can't do this. Maybe they should have had a meeting and said, look, we're going back to Jericho. This is not going to happen. I want you to read what happened. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do? And they said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand, on the other on your left, in your glory. Can you believe that? That is absolutely the most inappropriate response to what Jesus, it's almost like they didn't even hear him talking. Jesus is telling them that he's going to give his life. He's going to be brutalized on their behalf. And they go right past that and bring up this ignorant request. This is a scene full of irony. It is ironic that Jesus is talking about what he was going to give to them, and all they can think about is what can they get out of it. It is obvious that Jesus' warnings about his death and resurrection have not reached their hearts. In his second announcement, Jesus' disciples responded by arguing among themselves over who was greatest. In his first announcement, Peter argued with Jesus himself about it. And now here in his third announcement of his impending death, two of the key disciples go to Jesus and try to get in front of the line for a place of prominence in what they believe is going to be his coming kingdom. And it's evident that even though Jesus gives them all of the story about his suffering and scourging and death, they are still looking at the kingdom in terms of having it reestablished so that they can get out from under the bondage of Rome. And they believe that Jesus is going to set up his kingdom when he gets to Jerusalem. An ignorant response and request. Now, some people say this was nothing other than a power play. Oh, you mean your disciples in a power play? (laughs) Whatever we know, it is a grotesquely inappropriate request. Their desire to sit at the right hand and at the left hand demonstrated that they had no idea what Jesus was about to do and how it was going to affect them. Some people have suggested that James and John jumped into this because Peter was a part of their inner circle and they knew if they didn't get ahead of him, he would be there before they could get there. They were saying basically, Jesus, when you take power, we like the top two positions in your cabinet. And Matthew tells us something even more bizarre. Listen to this. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. 
the two boys got their mother involved. (laughs) You know, this is a story that often is told out of its context, the story of Jesus being asked about the right hand and the left hand. But you cannot take this out of context and understand it. Jesus has just told them that he is going to die in their behalf, and they're all about who gets to sit next to the king when he comes into his power. The sad part of the story is that Jesus had spent the last months of his life with these men, modeling what a servant looks like, how he acted. Somehow they had missed it all. Their request represented the attitude of the world when it comes to getting ahead. Their goal was power and influence next to the throne. They saw it, they coveted it, they wanted it, and they went after it. How disappointed Jesus must have been. You ever taught a class and poured your life into it and you get all done and somebody asks a question of you that makes you realize they haven't heard one word that you've said? That's kind of what Jesus was going through. How could you, how could you miss this? How could you blow this in such a big way? And we're really critical of James and John. I mean, they were his disciples. But wait a minute. Have we not all done similar things? Robert Raines wrote some free verse that I thought was so good it was worth sharing with you today. He said, I am like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me, how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, and give me strategic advantage. I exploit people ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors, your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, and your blank check for whatever I want. I am like James and John, Lord. Change me. I am like James and John. In ancient culture, a seat at the right hand of someone who was important was the seat of honor. The seat at the left would be reserved for someone who was an intimate friend. If you have been walking through Jerusalem, even to this day, and you see a rabbi walking through there and he has his disciples, the most important disciple will walk a little bit behind him to his right, and the second will walk a little bit behind him to his left, and the rabbi or the teacher will be in the middle. In the value system of Jesus, glory was reserved for those who endured suffering, not those who got to the right hand first. Jesus knew who was one day very soon going to be at his right hand and his left hand. You know who that was? Two thieves hanging on crosses right beside him. Jesus' question to his disciples is about to open up their understanding just a wee bit. Notice his response to them in verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. Oh, my goodness. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. Jesus responds to James and John's ignorant, self-serving request with a question of his own. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And he's using symbolic language here. The cup is a metaphor for suffering. 
And baptism is a metaphor for being plunged into the midst of calamity. Jesus will not be sprinkled with a bit of suffering. He's going to be submerged in it. And he's asking these two disciples, are you ready to be submerged into suffering to sit at my right hand and my left hand? From our perspective, we know that the question is really a rhetorical question with an expected answer. And we would have to say, Lord, we cannot do what only you can do. But the brothers declare that they can accomplish what Jesus accomplished was in their pride and their arrogance. And at this point, we are surprised that Jesus is okay. You will then. And they did, didn't they? Did you know that James was the first martyr of the disciples? You read about his execution in the 12th chapter of the book of Acts. And John was the last of the disciples to die on the Isle of Patmos as an exile for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. The book ends of the disciples. And Jesus says, you will, you will drink of my cup of suffering and you will be baptized in the baptism of my sufferings. And then Jesus adds one note. He says, but to sit on my right hand and my left hand is not mine to give. And if you go to Matthew chapter 20, you discover why. For in Matthew 20, we read, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and my left hand is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. In other words, Jesus says, the Father hasn't assigned this to me. He's holding this prerogative in his own hands. And it's the Father's decision as to who will sit at the right hand and the left hand. Now, Just pause for a moment and realize where we are in the story. Jesus has predicted his death. The disciples have asked a stupid question. And Jesus is going to take these two things and bring them together in one of the great teaching moments of his career. Notice the paradox of Jesus' doctrine, verse 41. First of all, we learned that when the other disciples heard what was going on, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Now, please understand this. They weren't displeased with James and John because they had come to grips with the fact that they had done a very evil thing. They were displeased with James and John because James and John got there before they could. That's why they were displeased. In other words, they thought James and John were rushing to the front of the line and they were going to be left behind. And so the Bible says Jesus called all of them together. Jesus called all of his disciples together. And he's going to tell them about true greatness. Verse 42, but Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus, first of all, takes a look at the common understanding of greatness Greatness, he says, the way the world looks at it is based upon how far up the hierarchy of responsibility and prominence one can climb. Jesus says the pagan path to greatness comes through domination and controlling other people, having authority over others. But he says the Christian path to greatness is different. The Christian path to greatness comes through service and self-sacrifice. People are not on the receiving end of service, but on the giving end of service in the kingdom of God. It was the Lord Jesus who said, according to Acts 20, 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that is an absolute truth. And any of you who have ever tried it out, you know that's true. More blessed to give 
than to receive. So on this day after Thanksgiving, why don't you commit yourself anew to being a servant? Find ways to help others. Don't always be sitting back waiting for somebody to do something good for you. Do something good for someone else, and you'll discover it will come back to you over and over again, a double blessing, if you will. I hope you will give it a try and find out that God's Word is true. Well, we're going to take a break for the weekend, and we have one more lesson in this series, and uh, it will be finishing up what we discussed today. The way up is the way down. That's Monday here on Turning Point. And then we get into the month of December, and we're going to devote the entire month to the teaching of the message of Christmas. Why the Nativity is the discussion. And our first lesson uh, on Tuesday of next week will be, Why Did Jesus Become a Man? Answering the questions about Christmas on Turning Point during the month of December. And uh, don't forget, you can get all of the material in search of the Savior. The Gospel of Mark material is available on CD. You can get all of the CDs. You can get the study guide that goes with it. You can get everything you need to have a Bible study of your own. Get your friends together, and don't talk about the weather. Don't talk about sports. Talk about the Word of God. Talk about the Savior and what He said as recorded in the book of Mark. It'll be a great expression of your faith and a great and wonderful way for you to grow. I encourage you to do it. By the way, go to the website, which is davidjeremiah.org. You'll find the material there that you need to get, and you'll be able to get started as soon as possible. Now, have a great weekend. I'll see you here on Monday for the next edition of Turning Point. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's current teaching series, In Search of the Savior, please visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine Turning Points and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. When you do, be sure to ask for your copy of O.S. Hawkins' new book, The Bible Code. Finding Jesus in every book in the Bible. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard Version, the New International Version, and the New King James Version, filled with helpful notes and articles by Dr. Jeremiah. Visit davidjeremiah.org radio for details. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us Monday as we conclude the series In Search of the Savior, here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Back in the day when most women were homemakers, when a husband retired, the wife thought of it as twice as much honey on half as much money. But many Americans' retirement plans have changed drastically in recent days. While I understand that nobody enjoys changes of that magnitude, there could be a silver lining. People of retirement age have so much they can contribute to society. And staying active and engaged with other people is mentally healthy. So if your retirement plans have changed, ask God for wisdom on how best to invest your senior years for your good and for His glory. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's plan for the rest of your life 
on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today. This Christmas may be the most under-celebrated Christmas in centuries. Without the usual festivities and gatherings, people may be feeling a distinct lack of the Christmas spirit. With that in mind, Turning Point and Dr. David Jeremiah have created the Home for Christmas Channel, an inspirational media platform offering free access to an array of Christmas music, videos, messages, and more. Sign up for your free Home for Christmas account at davidjeremiah.ca.